You're listening to a sermon from Trinity City. We're an evangelical church in Adelaide, South Australia, the city of churches. We'd love for you to join us any Sunday. Find out more at trinitycity.church. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were, num- you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to, you, to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him, Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and oil the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. 
the Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand, and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction." Utterly abhor and detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. Our second reading this evening comes from the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, which as you'll see you'll find on page 1201. We're just going to read a few verses starting at verse number 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Uh, My name is uh, Geoffrey Lynn, I'm one of the staff here. I want to start by saying this passage was not chosen for tonight's dedication. Um, Just happens to be this is the passage that we're up to in our series, making our way through the book of Deuteronomy, so let's just kind of get that straight, uh, in case anyone's feeling a bit distraught about what they just heard from Deuteronomy 7. Um, What we're doing in this series is we're spending some time reflecting on what it means as Christians for us to live uh, in the light of God's promises, looking forward by faith to that which we don't yet have in full, but which we're hoping for. And the way we've been doing that is actually going even further back in time uh, to the edge of the Promised Land, to the edge of the River Jordan, uh, where the nation of Israel is encamped, finally, after many, many years, about to cross and enter into this place uh, that God has said he would give to them. And these are kind of the final words, the instructions for how they are to live in the land when they get there. And obviously, therefore, there's a parallel with our situation today, although there are some differences. Uh, Each week we've tried to start with an issue that's relevant, I think, to us, and you'll see here at point two, this week's issue uh, is how do Christians fit into modern society? How do Christians fit into modern society? Of course, uh, for some people, uh, the answer is, well, not at all, actually. Uh, Some people say there's no place for Christians in our world, there's no place for religion, uh, particularly in a modern, pluralist, secular state. 
in some of the places around the world where we live now, scientific rationalism is king, a human achievement is of the highest praise. And if you want an extreme example, you might consider, for example, France, uh, which is trying, not successfully, mind you, but trying to remove any trace of religion in its society. Uh, what do you think about Australia? I mean, as a country, we've changed, obviously, uh, over the last 200 or so years, particularly uh, since uh, white settlement. Notionally, at first, in 1788, Australia is what you would say, was what you would say, a Christian country, uh, although clearly not a theocracy uh, like Old Testament Israel. I say that, of course, because for all the claims that Australian was Christian in 1788, we were a penal colony to begin with, so I think that kind of does raise some questions. I get not in South Australia, sure, but you know what I'm saying. Um, as recently as 1911, so 100 years ago, at the census in 1911, 96% of people said that they were Christian, uh, whatever that means for them. By 2011, 100 years later, five years ago, that number had dropped to 61%, down 35%. And, of course, you'll know that we attempted to conduct a census a few months ago. Uh, if the results ever come back, I wonder what you think people will say. 30%? 40%? Might say that they are Christian? The question then becomes, should we who are Christian try to be culturally relevant? Should we try to fit in as our country changes? And for all that we might have seen, I suppose this is a question particularly for Josh and Debbie as they think about the world that their son will live in over the next 70 or 80 years. What should he do as our country continues to evolve and change even further? Some people say that what we ought to do as Christians is that we ought to normalise the Christian community. We ought to make it as, to put it really bluntly, as unweird as possible for those who aren't Christians so that if they happen to stumble into a Christian community, they'll go, oh, this is perfectly normal, I'm okay with this. Uh, you might take as an extreme uh, some churches that if you go to uh, their Sunday gathering, to be honest, it feels more like a rock concert uh, where there's performance quality music and dazzling light shows. Now, I'm, of course, not being particularly critical about doing things well, but sometimes you get the feeling that what lies behind that is a desire to make anyone who's not a Christian think that coming to church is just like any other experience that they might have, just with a little bit of Jesus chucked in on the side. Others, of course, will go even further. They'll say that we ought to remove anything from our faith, anything from the Bible that might offend all in the name of fitting in. And I suppose that if that's what you think is the way in which we ought to fit into our modern society, then I suspect Deuteronomy 7 is one of the passages that's for the chop for you. Let's have a look at it again. Deuteronomy 7, uh, pick it up, page 179, uh, on, at verse 1. Now, I'm, I'm going to say three things about this passage. You'll see they're listed there on your handout, verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 11, and verses 12 through 26. Let me start by reading verses 1 through 6 again. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've de defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for 
they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will destroy you quickly. This is what you are to do with them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Uh, Point one, God's outrageous command. In verses two and three, God commands the Israelites to destroy the inhabitants of the land that they are entering to possess and to destroy them totally. Uh, You saw that there in those middle verses, no treaty, no mercy, no intermarriage. In fact, verse 5 calls for the complete eradication of their religion and of their culture from the face of the earth. Now, I realise how bad this sounds, Uh, especially if you're here today as a visitor, as a guest, perhaps, uh, as a friend uh, of uh, the Washingtons, you've come along to share in a day with them. I understand how bad this sounds. It sounds almost exactly like a call for ethnic cleansing. To somewhat set your mind at ease, uh, and I want to say this now because it will distract otherwise, this is not to be repeated under any circumstances. The commands are read here in Deuteronomy 7. They're not to be literally repeated today in any situation whatsoever. Uh, Although I do realise that Even if the command is not to be repeated today, it still doesn't deal with the problem, so why did God give it at all in the first place? It seems utterly abhorrent. It seems a stain on God's character. And of course, lest there is any confusion, first and foremost, this is God's decree. It is God who does the driving out in verse 1. It is God who is judging those nations. In a sense, uh, it's not a radical surprise to find these words, these commands in Deuteronomy 7. If you'd started at the beginning of the Bible, uh, you'd have already seen God previously wipe out all the peoples of the earth for their wickedness. Uh, We saw that back actually in Genesis 6 with the sending of the flood that was God's way of cleansing the earth Uh, actually of people, people who had brought such destruction upon it. What's a surprise in Deuteronomy 7, however, is that God's judgment on the nations that inhabit the land that Israel is about to enter, uh, God's judgment has taken so long. That's the really surprising part about Deuteronomy 7. Let me show you how. I'm going to ask you to flip back in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 15. This is the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 15, and you'll find this on page 13, Genesis 15 on page 13. And I'm going to ask you to drop down to verse 13, chapter 15, verse 13. Uh, it's in the middle of an interaction between God and Abram, Abraham, uh, who you might know. Verse 13, the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they'll come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age 
In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, the reason I draw your attention, uh, particularly to verse 16, is that the reference to the Amorites, of course, if you now turn back to Deuteronomy 7, you'll discover are one of the seven nations that are in the land that Israel is entering finally to possess. What's surprising about Deuteronomy 7 is that though the sin of the Amorites was very great, even as early as Genesis 15, still God has delayed his judgment for over 400 years. And it's a sign, therefore, of his grace and mercy. For those who know their Bibles well, actually, it's reminiscent of another incident where God sends a prophet called Jonah. It takes him a while to get there. He has a few detours along the way, but eventually he gets to the place where he's meant to go, to the city of Nineveh. God sends him to Nineveh that the Ninevites might repent and experience God's mercy and grace and not fall under his judgment, uh, which is exactly what happens for them. From Israel's perspective, therefore, the severity of God's command is actually for their protection. It's to ensure that she is not contaminated by the inhabitants of the land, that she does not go down in judgment with them. The reason for that, of course, is that Israel was chosen by God, chosen by God to be his treasured possession amongst all the nations of the world, so heaven help anything happen to the Israelites. Which then raises the next question, so why does God punish the nations but show special favour to Israel? And you'll see, therefore, verses 7 through 11, God's inexplicable choice. God's inexplicable choice. Pick it up in verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why is Israel so special to God? Well, it's not because she's more numerous than the other nations. She wasn't. She was a small nation in comparison. And it's certainly not because she was in any way better than the other nations. It's not like the Israelites were a particularly virtuous or a particularly moral nation. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament, uh, the next you know, 30-odd books, will show her culpability for rebelling time and time against God. In fact, her, her culpability is greater than the nations around because God loved her. And God had showered so much upon her. You see, I've referred there to Amos 3 verse 2. Again, you can look it up another time. Here's what Amos 3 verse 2 says. This is God speaking to Israel. You only of all the families of the earth have I chosen, he says to Israel, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. With greater favour, in fact, comes greater responsibility. So why is Israel so special to God? Well, The answer is in verse 8, because God loved her. Because God loved her. And this is a reference here to what we call the doctrine of election. That is, the reason Israel is favoured is, in the end, simply because God has chosen her. Now you might ask, why did God love her? Uh, The answer in verse 8 is not very satisfying. If you look again, it was because God loved you, 
and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. Uh, one of the reasons why God loved Israel was because he said that he would love Israel. Uh, in fact, he made a promise to Abram that he would love her. And what that tells us is that in the end, our God is bound by his word. He is bound by his own character, not by our conduct or anything that we do. And the good news of hearing that is that it means there is no need for us to always have to try to prove our worthiness to God. We cannot. The reason he showers favour on us is simply because he loves us and because he has promised to love us. Well, verses 12 through 26, the rest of the chapter, let me just say one thing about that and then try and make some Christian reflections for us today. Verses 12 through 26, God's awesome power. Um, If the command... Uh, to do as God says in the land, that is, to, what, to drive out the inhabitants, uh, if that seems hard, and it will be, if fitting in sounds like a more appealing option than being faithful to God, verses 12 through 26 give two reasons why we ought to have courage to trust in God's power, in his awesome power. Uh, the first reason is because of his power for us. So you see that in verses 12 through 16. Uh, One last time, let me read out this section, verses 12 through 16. I'm I'm just going to read it out and let it sink in so you can feel the extravagance of what God is promising. See, the land that they're going into, it's not just a land flowing with milk and honey, if you've heard that phrase. Listen to the way in which it's described. It's over the top in every way. Verse 12, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant out of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He'll bless the fruit of your womb the crops of your land, your grain, your wine and oil, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks and the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you. You'll be blessed more than any other people. None of your, young, of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. If the Israelites are concerned that being faithful to God will be hard, well, what they're being reminded is that God is powerful. He is very powerful, and he is for them entirely. Uh, The rest of the chapter, verses 17 through 26, remind them of God's awesome power against Israel's enemies. His awesome power to do what might seem impossible to them. It seemed impossible to their parents, in fact. You heard Josh refer to that earlier when he uh, told a lovely story of how he has named his son Caleb. Only two from the previous generation believed that God could do what he he said he would do in driving out the opposition. The rest all perished in the wilderness under his judgment. It is hard living by faith. It's hard living by faith under God's promises. So what Deuteronomy 7 does is remind us once again of God's power both to protect and to strengthen us. Well, point four then, some Christian reflections. Uh, Let me try and move us from the episode some 2,000 years before Christ on the edge of the promised land forward to our situation today. What do we take from this and how do we apply it uh, to our context? Well, a few thoughts. Firstly, again, so I'm not misheard, there is no call 
for God's people today to engage in any kind of holy war. Okay, so I'm not misled, let me say it again. There is no call for God's people today to engage in any kind of holy war against our enemies. Uh, There's two reasons for that, actually. Uh, The first is, although the Old Testament tells the story of God's election of Israel, in fact, his plan was always for all the nations of the world, and that all the nations of the world would ultimately be blessed through the nation of Israel. Again, on your handout, I've referred to Genesis 12, verse 3. Genesis 12, verse 3, here, this is God's promise to Abram. He promises Abram that he'd make him into a great nation, that's the nation of Israel, but ultimately, in verse 3, all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you, is God's promise to the first Israelite. And, of course, you see hints of this wider plan of salvation throughout the Old Testament, as not just Israel, but other nations from time to time do come under and receive God's blessing. And you see people from other nations who actually are grafted into Israel and become Israelites, not biologically, but by faith. Uh, But the second reason why there is no call for God's people today to engage in holy war is that no nation today is God's arm of judgment the way Israel was because, and this is really important, because there's actually no need. There is no need anymore for God's judgment to fall on the nations of the world because some 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside Jerusalem, the judgment of all mankind falls on the Son of God. All that remains now is the last judgment. And our task as Christians is to save people whilst there is still time. Two questions then. How should we expect the world to view us? How should we expect the world to view us? You'll see I've referred to John 15 verse 18. Here's what Jesus says. If the world hates you, bear in mind that it hated me first. Jesus speaking, if the world hates you, Bear in mind, it hated me first. Of course, so there's no misunderstanding. Clearly the world hated Jesus, didn't it? It put him to death. So if they hated Christ, they'll hate us. And the only way to avoid persecution, if you're a Christian, the only way to avoid persecution in the end is to change allegiance. In 21st century Adelaide, I think Christianity is not just considered to be obsolete, but it's fast being considered offensive. How do we understand then how Christians are meant to fit into society? What I thought I'd do is that um, I'd try and give you an image that helps you understand who we are in the world around us. It's an image that's built around cities, and you'll see I've listed there in your handout. I've called it a tale of three cities, Uh, Jerusalem, Athens and Babylon. Three cities that we meet in the Bible that give, I think, pictures for understanding how Christians fit in this world around us. Let me try and talk about each of them and then see which you think best describes where we are today. Uh, The first city is the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, as you know, um, it's 
after the Israelites enter the Promised Land, eventually after they conquer the Promised Land uh, and they take Jerusalem, it becomes the capital. And it becomes known as the City of God. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant is brought. This is the place where the temple is built. And God himself is said to dwell amongst his people. The picture of Jerusalem is of a place where God is at the very centre of everything that happens in the life of that place. And it sounds ideal. It sounds lovely. At different points in history, Christians have tried to replicate it. If you know anything about John Calvin, uh, that's what he tried to do in Geneva, with some success. Of course, the big problem is, if you think you live in, we live in Jerusalem, well, like perhaps 100 years ago at our census, with 96% of the population saying they're Christian, nominalism clearly is rife. Here's the second picture. It's the picture of Athens. Again, now I said these are biblical pictures. This is not modern-day Athens I'm talking about. That's probably bankrupt by now. So we're talking about Athens. This is the Athens that we meet in Acts chapter 17, uh, where the Apostle Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. He comes to Athens and he discovers a great city where we're told all the Athenians like to do all day is sit around and talk about the latest ideas. And they're very open-minded. Whoever wants to say what they want to say, people will stop and listen. In fact, they even have an altar set aside to what they call the unknown God, just in case you know, someone else wants to come along and tell them about something new. This is what you would describe the city that's the ultimate in postmodernism, where if you like it and if it's true for you, that's fine. If I think it's right and it's true for me, that's fine. We'll all just you know, live happily and coexist peacefully with each other. Um, I suspect, actually, our country was like that at one stage. Um, relatively recently, in some senses, uh, in different contexts, uh, the students who I worked with on campus a few years ago uh, ran an outreach week uh, with a brilliant theme. Their theme they picked for outreach week was, I think Jesus is... dot dot dot, So that everyone could kind of just fill in the sentence however they thought. Brilliant way of doing things. The problem, of course, is that in the end, that kind of relativism, that... What's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me, and we'll all just happily coexist. Well, as you know, it's a load of nonsense. Invariably, inevitably, it has to collapse, because no one genuinely believes that, because what you believe actually translates into your conduct. So here's the third picture, the third way of trying to describe how we relate to the world around us. We've thought about Jerusalem with God at the centre. We've thought about Athens, where everyone's free to think whatever they want. The third It's the picture of Babylon. And here I'm particularly thinking of the Babylon that we meet in the pages of the Old Testament. The Babylon where Daniel and his friends find themselves placed in a situation where to declare their allegiance to God means they get thrown into the fire or into a den of lions. Now if I were to say that Adelaide is fast becoming like Babylon, you'd probably look at me a little bit strangely. You can imagine there are places around the world like Pyongyang or Mosul, where it very much is Babylon even now. But I think this is where we're heading. After all, without engaging in politics particularly, At the last election, the leader of the opposition, 
the leader of the opposition called people who say that same-sex marriage is not right. He just labelled all of them as bigots and haters. I think we're moving to a time where actually Christians aren't going to be known as do-gooders anymore. We'll yearn for those days, actually. We'll be called do-badders. So, second question. How should we view this world which hates us? How should we view this world which hates us? Should we try to be culturally relevant? Should we even bother trying to fit in? Let me give you two wrong responses. The first wrong response, I think, is to try to blend in, to try to avoid ostracism at best, outright persecution at worst. I say that because of James 4 verse 4. Again, the reference is there. James 4 verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I presume that's the reason why 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 14 through 18, again, the reference is there, 2 Corinthians 6, uh, they take the principle of no intermarriage uh, to mean don't be unequally yoked with any unbeliever. That is, don't be so attached to people who are idolaters that you become an idolater like them. And I think for us, the test is, in the end, if our lives look no different from those around us, if our conversations sound no different from those around us, perhaps it's because we've ceased to be different. I do worry sometimes when I think about the conversations that I have with my Christian friends and with those who don't serve the true and living God, And I think about things that we talk about, our kids' education, our mortgage, our holidays, discontent with work, and I can't tell any difference between the two. So the first wrong response is to try just to fit in. The second wrong response, it's the opposite extreme, the second wrong response is to try to flee the world to try to avoid it entirely, to risk becoming, to avoid becoming contaminated. I'm thinking here of uh, those from the past, of the monks and the nuns, the monastic movements, who recognised the impurity of the world around and would often retreat in entirety. At one level, I want to commend them for their boldness, I don't know that I'd have the courage just to leave everything of this world behind to avoid being brought down with it. But on the other hand, they entirely miss the point of 1 Peter 2. They entirely miss the point of 1 Peter 2. That was the second reading that we had. Because what Peter makes it very clear is that we are to be in the world without belonging to it. What we're called to do is not withdraw entirely from the world, but to seek ongoing engagement. And the reason for that, quite simply, is that we might have 
opportunity to warn those around us of how terrible it is to fall into the hands of the living God, that they might repent as we've been fortunate to do whilst there is still time. In the end, the reason why we are to be in the world but not belonging to it, why we're not permitted simply to retreat from it, is because, well, thank God, Jesus himself gave up his place in heaven to come down to us, to gather us, and to take us home. If you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, uh, you might have wondered to yourself, why is it that your Christian friend keeps raising the topic of Jesus with you? Why they keep coming back for more? Even when they know probably how you're going to react and certainly how the world around reacts. You ever wonder why they keep, keep on, keep on? Well, it's because they love you. And because they have understood how fortunate they are to have met the living God whilst they've had time to repent. Uh, That's, of course, the reason why for 2,000 years Christians, in fact, have gone to the ends of the earth uh, to take the good news about Jesus even to those they don't know. Well, let me wrap up with two practical suggestions then on how to engage this world that we're in but don't belong to because I get it's not easy. Two practical suggestions. The first is, I think, uh, if we understand that we're in Babylon, we ought to probably stop expecting that our society will reflect Christian values. We ought to stop expecting that our society will will reflect Christian values. After all, if most Australians aren't Christians, there's no particular reason to expect them to want to live their lives under the lordship of Jesus. Uh, We live in a democracy, of course, Uh, for which I regularly thank God. Uh, We live in a democracy, so if we can't persuade the majority that Jesus' way is better, then really don't get too upset. Uh, That reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, finished at verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they uh, accuse you of doing evil, they see your good works and will glorify Jesus on the day in which he visits us. Verse 13, the very next verse, we didn't read it, but the very next verse is, submit then to the ruling authorities. Submit to the ruling authorities. There's an expectation that if we can't change this world, then, well, perhaps we ought not be quite so devastated. It seems to me that if we do want the structures of our society to change, then what we must do is buy into the political process and not just be the single-issue activists for whom it's relatively easy to throw rocks on the issue that bothers you, but we need to be people who are prepared to see the whole picture and are prepared to try and persuade others that, in fact, Jesus' way is better. And so with that in mind, can I implore you, please pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who have made what, in my view, is the incredibly courageous choice to go into politics. I think of um, David Fawcett, senator here in South Australia, who's a Christian man. Or I think of Mike Baird, who's the Premier of New South Wales, again, another fine Christian man. Their decisions are not straightforward. They need our prayers. As an aside, 
if we get into conversations with people about contentious matters, and so I've referred to one already, same-sex marriage, um, to remind you of my evangelistic Bible reading strategy from a couple of weeks ago, I think actually what would make more sense for us is to focus more on who Jesus is than on the pluses and minuses of sexual morality. Because in the end, it's only Jesus who will change people's lives. So I'll give you an example. Some of you will have heard of Tim Keller, a very fine American pastor and writer. Uh, He talks about his approach when someone asks him about what Christians think about homosexuality. Here's what he says. He says if someone asks him, what's a Christian perspective on homosexuality? His response is, do you think Jesus is the son of God like he claims to be? Because he says to the person, if Jesus isn't the son of God, you might as well ignore everything that he has to say. But if he is, if he is who he claims to be, then you've got far bigger issues to deal with than simply your sexual conduct. That's not the only way of dealing with the issue, but what I like about it is that it moves the attention to what really matters and what is primary and foundational. Okay, second suggestion, very quickly then, is we're trying to think about how to engage with this world around us. Um, I think we ought to focus a little less on big picture moral campaigns, like the same-sex marriage one, because we're going to lose it. Eventually, we'll lose that campaign. I think we'd do much better to spend more time on working out how we support individual Christians to stand firm for Jesus. Let me give you two scenarios. Uh, The first is over same-sex marriage. It's right for us to think about it. It's right for us to have a voice. It's right for us to be prepared. It's right for me as a minister to think about what will happen if same-sex marriage comes in and then I get required to perform marriages or ask to perform marriages and then sued for discrimination. There's a whole bunch of questions there and already some denominations have indicated they'll just give up the right to perform weddings full stop. But here's the real question, I think. What are we doing to help prepare my 13-year-old son who's at a state high school when the state high school has a plainclothes fundraising day for the gay and lesbian club on campus that's sponsored by the school? What are we doing to help him work out what stand to take, what to say to his classmates that he might stand firm for Jesus? A different way of encouraging us to think about caring for individual Christians is, you'll see there's reference there to a website livinghopesa.com.au. Uh, members of this gathering will know that over the past, couple, past year or so, uh, I've been saying to you that as a, as a church, we've been trying to think about how to care for Christian brothers and sisters who struggle with unwanted same-sex attraction uh, and that we've been thinking about how we develop a ministry to particularly care for people in such situations. All I want to say tonight, we'll tell you more about it next year, is that that ministry has begun Uh, It's a ministry across a number of different churches and denominations here in Adelaide. The website there, livinghopesa.com.au, if you'd like to find out more. That's one way in which we're trying to think about how to help individual Christians stand firm for Jesus. I'm going to stop by reminding you of a memory verse. You'll recall that we've been doing these as we've been going along. 
the memory verse that I picked this week is from John 14. And I picked it because it's a reminder of where we do belong, of where our home is. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I'll come back to take you to be with me that you might be where I am also. That's the home that we're looking forward to. We join me in praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and mercy in choosing us when we had no reason to expect it. We pray that you might give us courage to stand firm for Jesus, that you might give us compassion for those around us, and that you might, in your grace and mercy, bring many to know and love the Lord as we do, that they might glorify him on the day in which he returns. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you'd like to know more about who we are or what we believe, visit trinitycity.church.